So as you can imagine, it's uh, a privilege for me to watch that in the isolation of my office because if I would be watching it publicly, I'd be a blithering mess. But the reality is this video led me to read more and more stories of Alzheimer's patients and uh, people who struggle with dementia. I read stories from caregivers, from spouses, from children, how life has changed dramatically. I remember one of my wife's favorite movies, uh, the 2004 uh, movie, The Notebook. Um, it's uh, the story where Allie uh, can't remember her husband, Noah, and uh, she can't even remember her children, her, her great-grandchildren, um, let alone her story. And the only thing that helps her bring back her memory was her husband, Noah, recounts a story, keeps telling a story over and over and over again. Even though reviewers said this really was a, a very good picture of what dementia really looks like, it was a vivid reminder for me of how broken our world really is. It's a vivid reminder of how deeply sin affects our bodies, how, how it affects our relationships, how it even affects our, our memories. And all of us, the reality is, all of us struggle with this same kind of affliction. We all struggle from day to day, week to week, moment to moment, with some kind of spiritual dementia, amnesia, Alzheimer's. Forgetting where we are. And it's, it's a sad affliction for the people of God. We, we forget who we are. We forget where we're going. And, and often we become confused in this world. We grow lost. And we, even sometimes we grow scared. And because we forget who we are and where we're going, we, we sometimes have the opposite problem people with dementia have. Instead of wanting to go home, we think we already are home. And we begin to look at this world as a place or a thing that satisfies our hearts as opposed to holding out for the treasures, the, the beautiful, immense, the riches that God has for us instead. But the beautiful thing is, the encouraging thing is that Jesus knows your frame. Jesus knows your frame. He understands your brokenness and He knows about your forgetfulness. And in His kindness, in His graciousness to us, not only has He given us the Word of God, but He has also given us the sacraments. He has given us baptism as as a beautiful gift. And He has also given us the Lord's Supper. This meal tells us who we are. And it tells us also where we are going. It's a tangible sign that we can see, that we can touch, that we can taste, that we can smell. Uh, Augustine, St. Augustine, describes the sacraments as a visible kind of the Word of God. A visible kind of the Word of God. It appeals to all the senses so that we can remember who He is, what He has done for us, so that we can know, so that we can remember 
who we are and where we are going. So this morning we are going to be looking, we're going to be examining uh, Luke chapter 2, starting at verse 7. And we are going to be looking at this closely, the different elements, but also the, the whys and the hows of communion. Honestly, I don't think that in our 10 years, 12 years as a church, I have ever preached a sermon specifically on this topic. So for me, this has been a fun um, process, and I pray that God will bless your heart as we open up His Word. Would you stand now for the reading of God's Word? Luke chapter 2, starting at verse 7. 22. 22, not just 2. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said that because, just so you know, by this time, it's like going to the vacation spot in the last moment, trying to find a spot. All the spots have been filled. And the disciples are going, Really? You want us to find a place now? So he said this, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, Where is the guest room? Where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room, furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it, just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is, at, is on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who is going to do this? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So about a month ago, um, it's actually been a, a long conversation with Nathan and I uh, about the Lord's Supper. Um, my desire as a pastor and also as a Christian man is to my desire is to grow in obedience. And one of the areas that it, it has just 
weekend, especially as we serve communion on a weekly basis, my heart kind of goes, are we missing something? And I started having these conversations with Nathan, and, and I put out a proposal, started doing my reading and my writing and my, my theological studies, my biblical studies, and having conversations with different people uh, from different kinds of backgrounds and just said, hey, how do we best align ourselves? And so uh, about a month ago, you received uh, via the Realm and also it has been announcements and a little pamphlets about the change that we we are we have proposed and so this morning i i thought it would be best to actually deliver a sermon on this very important thing weekly we come to the lord's supper and i want us to all make sure that we understand what is going to be what what takes place here what is going here in the three synoptic gospels the, the three gospels matthew mark and luke uh, and the Apostle Paul, they, they all give prominence to the last meal that Jesus ate with His disciples before He died. And here they tell us that Jesus called His disciples and by extension calls us to remember Him in sharing bread and wine. And we, we can all recognize where this took place. It was that last night. We can probably picture in our mind, it was probably a, a dark room, right? With a low table. And they were all reclining. You've probably seen the, the paintings of Jesus with His disciples. One was laying on Him. That was the, the Apostle John, the younger one, the, the beloved disciple. And so, but, but what does it all mean? Was it just a meal that they shared? John Calvin argues that the Lord's Supper provides the faithful with spiritual food consisting in union with Christ who is present in the sacrament. He is with us. He said, it is as if Christ here, as if Christ here present, present were Himself set before our eyes and touched with our hands. God's promises are sealed as we are made partakers. I love that. It says, if Christ is here, we are almost touching Him as we eat and drink. By partaking of Him, John Calvin says, His life passes into us and is made ours. Just as bread, when taken as food, imparts vigor to the body. So this weekly thing that we do is not an inconsequential thing. It's not just a thing that we tack on to the end of the services. It's not just something that we do for tradition's sake. In fact, the Westminster Confession of Faith uh, reminds us of this in chapter 21. It says this, The Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, instituted, started, put into place the sacrament of His body and blood called the Lord's Supper. It is to be observed in the church until the end of the age. So it tells you what the time frame is, right? Until Jesus comes back, we are to participate in this meal. It goes on to say this, and these, just so you know, the numbers are not uh, found in the Westminster. That's my addition. It is for what? It is for the perpetual, the ongoing remembrance of the sacrifice of Himself in His death. So it's to remember He has done this. Two, it is for sealing 
of all the benefits of that death unto true believers. In other words, in this, somehow, by God's Spirit, all the benefits of Christ's shed blood, His work, are sealed for those who are true believers. goes on, number three. It is for their, your spiritual nourishment and your growth in Him. Four, it is for your increased commitment to perform all the duties which we owe to Him. In other words, somehow through this sacrament, it gives us the strength and the desire to be obedient, to fulfill all of our duties. And lastly, it is for a bond and pledge of our fellowship with Christ and with each other as members of His mystical body. And so, there is a lot going on in this meal. It is not just you coming up, taking bread, eating bread, taking the cup, drinking the cup, and you go sit down and sing your favorite worship song. That's not what's going on here. We are given clear instructions that this meal, this sacrament, is for your spiritual good. And it is also a way that we commit to one another. So I want to dive into this text and see what God might actually have in store for us. I want us to look, first of all, at the significance of the bread and the wine. We need to understand, first of all, though, that there is significance, one, in that this was actually a meal. It was a meal. Eating in, in the etiquette of the table, we, we were deep, there were deep significant things in the ordinary everyday life of the jewish person it was every meal is somehow textured with meaning they did not just eat to eat so when jesus took bread and when he took the cup at this passover meal it was a multi-course meal it had four different cups. The first three cups were watered-down wine. The last one was full-on wine. And there was different vegetables. There were different things that were included. And each one had particular meaning. Among Jews in Jesus' days, it also, who you ate with was as important as what you ate and how you ate. Since eating was an act of fellowship and it was an act of acceptance, to eat with sinners was to accept them as friends and to, as companions. And so part of this is when we come up here, we are dining with Christ, but we're not just dining with Christ. We're not just receiving all the benefits of this meal and it being sealed to our hearts. There is something that we are dining with one another. This is a fellowship meal. So that last supper in the upper room before Jesus' death should have been seen as a connection with all the other memorable meals where Jesus was a guest and a host. Every, every time believers gather around the bread and the wine, Jesus again lovingly extends His table fellowship to you. To us. And on top of that, he doesn't just extend it, he lavishly feeds us and he accepts us all as friends. So in the Lord's Supper, the bread represents the body of Christ, and the, obviously the wine represents his, his blood. Yet the bread and the wine are not just mere symbols. 
They're not just symbols. The, the Lord's Supper is not just a, a memorial, as some denominations and Christians have. It's not just a, oh, remember what He did. And so the bread and the wine are not just a, oh, we need something to fill this spot. Rather, the Lord's Supper, there's a mystery that is actually taking place where believers are actually fed by Christ by faith. We're fed. Symbols were much like the music for the woman that we saw in this video. They are reminder, not they, they help us, they, they bring back the remembrance of, oh, do you remember what he has done? And in that, we are fed. Our souls are encouraged. So Jesus took the bread and he, he uttered words of blessing to God as he had for every single meeting, meal that he had taken place. And then he said, this is my body. Now, if you were an outsider at this time listening to this, or if you were in the pagan world, in that Roman culture at that time, and you were listening to uh, the pastor break bread and said, this is my body, and Jesus said, eat all of it. It sounds of cannibalism, right? And you could be maybe slightly freaked out, going, what is going on here? But Jesus is, is doing this. He is linking this blessed bread to Himself. Just as the bread was received as a gift from God and now shared among them, now in Christ's death, Jesus is saying, I am a gift from God for you. Now eat it. Now they were to eat the, the bread blessed with thanksgiving as, as Jesus, God's eternal gift of life to them. During that time, bread was a staple of life. In, in biblical imagery, it, it symbolized that which you cannot live without. You needed bread. Remember Jesus said, He said this, I am the bread of life. Anyone who eats of this bread, so think about this as we're, we're going to be coming to the Lord's Supper. Anyone who eats of this bread, eats of me, I am the bread of life, shall live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. He's essentially saying, listen, if you want to live, you are going to have to partake of me. Additionally, since in the Jewish thinking, the bread included the whole meal. You could have a whole meal with just bread. The bread included all of Christ and all of His benefits. His incarnation, His life of obedient service, and everything that He was about to do for them in His redeeming death and His His. Resurrection. When Jesus linked the, the blessed and broken bread and together with His body, He very likely meant that this bread represented His whole person as God was now giving it to them. And in eating and drinking it together, they would have fellowship with Him and with one another. So my friends, when, when we eat the bread... And this is a great thing to remember when you, when you par participate in communion. You are just eating common, everyday, ordinary, Hawaiian 
bread. I'll never forget the one time when somebody brought sourdough to bread to church. It was like the, Ooh! but it's it's common everyday bread. Nothing magically happens. It doesn't somehow turn into the body of Christ. It is common, ordinary bread. And just as it is common, ordinary bread, there is sustenance to it. There is nutritional value found in that loaf of ordinary bread. And so when we eat this bread, having blessed it, we are saying, Jesus, You are who You say You are. You are the bread of life. That is who You are. And I, Jesus, I cannot. I cannot live without You. In fact, without You, I will die. And we can also see in the breaking of the bread how vividly, how vividly it portrays the body of Christ broken for us on the cross. The tearing apart of the loaf depicts the violent and and dreadful death by which we have been delivered from sin and condemnation. That's why I do not want our church to ever go to the nice wonder bread, nicely cut cubes. It's too purty. The reality is this was a violent thing that took place. His body was broken for you. It also demonstrates that all the faithful share in one loaf. We share in the one body of Christ. So as each removes a segment of broken bread, a broken piece of this one loaf, a visible message is visibly conveyed. And it comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one loaf. So this is not just delicious Hawaiian bread. When we come to the Lord's Supper, it is set apart. It is something that nourishes us when we partake in faith. It connects us and seals us with all the benefits that are in Christ. But in the same way, it connects us all to each other. But now wine. This, this, this is the, the, the change. Nothing else has changed thus far. And for the, ever since we began Missio Day, we've always had grape juice. And uh, part of the reason, just historically, that we've had grape juice is because we met in a public school and the, the superintendent... Uh, was quite adamant that we not allow any kind of alcoholic beverages in the building because, according to him, it was state law. Little did he know in the Illinois statute it is permissible to have it in the building for sacramental purposes. I didn't know that. We pulled back. At the bare minimum, grape juice does reflect a pitcher. So why do many churches, especially in America, use grape juice when for nearly 2,000 years the church has always used wine? Why? Well, the use of grape juice is an American uh, invention, or dare I say, it's an American insertion. 
It was invented uh, 150 years ago. And we know this because historically there has been no such thing up to that point of a thing called grape juice. There was no such thing as grape juice during Jesus' time. We, we didn't have the know-how and the technology to even invent such a thing. Because as soon as a grape's skin is broken, the fermentation process begins. And my friends, within three to seven days, you have full-on wine. And that is when it gets 70% of its alcoholic content. As soon as you squeeze grapes, you have wine. So the, the use of grape juice in communion in, in, is an American deviation from the biblical practice, and it all started during the temperance uh, movement. Does anybody know? Come on, let me see how historical. When is the temperance movement? Yeah, the, I'm impressed that you even said Great Awakening, Second Great Awakening. So it's around the 1820s, 1830s, 1840s, it grew. And part of the reason that it grew, this temperance movement, was not just because, ah, we're sick of wine, but because there was a major problem of alcoholism. Wives were abandoned at home as their, their husbands went out and just got totally plowed. It has nothing, it had nothing to do, friends, it had nothing to do with communion wine. It had everything to do about what was going on in the culture. And so the temperance movement was, grew strong. The Methodist church said, was the first ones to say that they would use unfermented wine in communion but the problem was, is they couldn't figure out how to do it. So they took grapes, and they soaked them in water. You can imagine what that tasted like. Sometimes they took, uh, they took dry raisins, dried up grapes, soaked them in water, and said that would become wine. In some Methodist churches, they said, listen, this is what we're going to do. Since we can't figure it out, we are going to serve water. And so communion started becoming watered down. So along comes this dentist who was a communion steward in the uh, Methodist church, and he became interested in the work of Louis Pasteur, the inventor of pasteurization. So he took all of that, and he applied it to grape juice. By the way, that communion steward's name is Thomas Welch. And that's where grape juice was born. Welch's grape juice was invented so the, the Methodists could take communion. That's where it all came from. Now, I have no doubt that Mr. Welch's heart was in the right place, but it all started from what I believe is a misunderstanding of both the use and the misuse of alcohol. So, I, I want to show you this. this. Even the word alcohol and the inclusion of, of wine, potential, your potential use of wine, you're, you're going, oh man, doesn't the Bible say a lot about it? And the Bible does say a lot about drinking. In fact... You can look at this. There are 247 references in the Bible about alcohol. 40 are negative. 
In other words, 40 of them are warnings about drunkenness, potential dangers, stories about people who were who are drunks. There are 145 that are positive references. Signs of God's blessings, how it was used in worship. 62 are just plain old neutral. In other words, there, there were stories about people who are falsely accused of being drunks. There, there are stories about vows of abstinence. Those kind of things. So the Bible is anything but silent on the use of wine. So let, let's understand, much like bread, bread carried a lot of textured meaning and purpose. We don't use Twinkies or Ho-Hos in the Lord's Supper. We use bread intentionally. So why should we also look at wine. God gave wine to gladden the hearts of men. If you look at Psalm 104, verse 15, it tells that God gave wine to gladden their hearts. So there's this joyfulness. There's this joyfulness in the Lord's Supper that, that wine testifies to. Wine is, a, is, is symbolic of joy and celebration. That's why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 26, that he won't drink wine again, the fruit of the vine, until I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. Why did Jesus say that? Because that will be, that will be the time to celebrate and really rejoice. And now he was being put to death. And it was a time of sorrow for him. So after that last fourth cup, that was it for Jesus. He drank that cup. But until then, He is waiting for that last day when we all will be seated around that great communion table with Him, celebrating with joy and gladness. The reality is, Myself included, we can all be kind of guilty of being kind of sour and dour in our in our in our supper. We kind of come up here and it's this kind of low in the gravy lay, Jesus, my Savior, uh, a moment of heaviness. And yes, it should absolutely, but it should also. We cannot forget the celebration, the celebration that is symbolized in the wine of su- of the supper. Listen, I, I love grape juice. As a kid, I loved grape juice. It was one, I, one of my favorite drinks, which my wife and kids think is absolutely disgusting, was this drink called the Purple Cow. The Purple Cow. Anybody else? Oh! It's good. So what it is, is basically it's a grape juice milkshake. Oh! Hudson, help me out here. Come on. But, okay, so there is something wonderful. And, and as a kid, I was all excited about a grape juice milkshake. And it, it brought joy. And there was celebration dancing around for this milkshake. But you know what? Grape juice doesn't gladden the hearts of men in the same way that wine does. Something is lost in the move from Wine to grape juice. But we also see here that wine is a transformed substance. It's a transformed substance. And I would just... Wine... There's no wine until the fruit is crushed. 
right? The grape must also die so that we can receive joy and gladness that that cup represented. And while we can hold the crushed grape, and when we hold the crushed grape, we remember what it took, what it took to give us this drink. But you see, wine isn't simply the death of a grape. In essence, it is the death and the resurrection of the grape. When it becomes, what it becomes when the fermentation is complete is completely different than what it was before. After the grapes are crushed, the juice sits there, it is covered, it sits in darkness, the yeast consumes the sugars, and once it does its work, the yeast and sugar produces alcohol while it keeps the same essence of what it was before. But it has been changed. And in essence, wine is a resurrection drink. It still has the flavor of grapes that it was there, but it is something new. It died. It came back, but different than it was before. There's, a, there's resurrection that is symbolized in the cup that we drink. The grape dies so that something new can come about. When we only drink grape juice, I think that there is something lost. It's almost as though the death is still there, but the resurrection is missing from the symbolism. I agree with R.C. Sproul when he said this. There's an ongoing controversy in many Protestant churches uh, in that many Protestant churches don't use wine in the celebration of the sacrament. In fact, I think the majority of churches don't use wine. Most use a form of grape juice. One of the major reasons for that is the problem with alcoholism. And that is a, my friends, I'm, pause right there. That is a real, real challenge. That is a real issue for some of you. The reality is on the night that he was betrayed, you were on Christ's mind. And yet he instituted this meal with the elements he instituted. I'll get to this more at the end. Church leaders want to protect their people from, from unnecessary temptation. In other cases, churches don't believe that Jesus used real wine. In fact, there, there are some Baptist um, uh, children's storybook books out there that... Um, <laughs> work hard at making sure you know that it was grape juice. That Jesus turned water into grape juice. And it's actually in there. And they'll quote the Bible verse. And it's like, that's a, that's a crazy liberty you just took right there. But R.C. Sproul goes on to say this. I agree with Calvin. Real wine communicates to our taste buds both elements pain and joy sorrow and gladness and somehow in my opinion grape juice just doesn't do it i think we lose something there because in the worship of israel god associated certain truths with certain tastes so wine itself does 
hear me say this in the best way possible. Wine itself conveys the intoxicating nature of the gospel. And feeding on Christ is the most enjoyable thing that can be done. It is the heart of the Christian faith. It gladdens the heart of the faithful when we are able to dine on the gospel. And wine points to the meal as a celebration for our forgetful souls. We don't merely drink it for nutritional value. We drink it to enhance the joy in the celebration. So when we share in this cup, it affirms what it is already and will come become in God's coming kingdom. A community of joy and gladness and feasting with the people of God. So here's the reality. Healthy, biblical, Presbyterian, Reformed, Calvinistic, you name it, churches, healthy churches differ on the use of wine in communion for theological, practical, and sometimes, honestly, reasons of fear. And I, personally, would never break fellowship or refuse sharing in the Lord's Supper for those who practice different than this. For them, it's a matter of conscience. It's a matter of convictions. It's a matter of practicality. Sometimes it's a matter of fear. So, honestly, I, I would not stay back and say, no, in fact, for the past 12 years, what have I done? The blood of Christ for you. And I myself will drink of it. But for some of you, you find yourself uncomfortable. Or maybe you even disagree with the session's decision to add wine, despite what I've shared. And that's fine. It's an issue of conscience for you. But friends, here's just a little bit of understanding. God alone is the Lord of the conscience. God alone. He, and how does He rule? How is He Lord of our conscience? He rules our consciences by His Word. That's how He rules. Samuel Rutherford said this, the Word of God must be the rule of conscience. And conscience is a servant and an underjudge only, not a lord, nor an absolute and sovereign, in independent sovereign. Conscience is ruled by Scripture. David Clarkson, a Puritan, wrote this, Conscience is God's deputy and must, in the exercise of this office, confine itself to the orders and instructions of the Sovereign Lord. And then James Bannerman, the Presbyterian churchman, said this, the conscience is a sanctuary where God alone may enter and where none but God may rule. So my friends, my challenge for me and my challenge for you 
for us as a church is like in all things, we need to allow the Word of God to shape us, to form us. And, and I'm reminded in my own life and I'm reminded in your lives because I walk with many of you that growth in life sometimes happens at a frustratingly slow pace where you're going, is there even movement? Yet the best spiritual fruit arrives after long seasons of tenderness, caretaking, patience, on your part. And my friends, the journey is worth it. The diving into Scripture and allowing God to change and transform your mind. A growing faith always takes time. And the, and the faith that we live, the faith that we live is lived out quorum Deo. In other words, it is lived out before the face of God. As with all things, you must reconcile your decisions with God's Word. With God's Word. If, and at this time, you are not ready to take the wine. My, my brothers and sisters, that is your decision. That decision is lived out before the face of God. No one is going to judge you. But I do want to encourage you in a couple things. And it's really tied together into one. Wrestle with God's Word. But wrestle with God's Word in community and specifically with your elders. We are called to shepherd your heart, to walk with you, to caretake with you. Had a great conversation with a a brother in Christ about this and this brother is wrestling with whether or not to take it and I said that is between you and the Lord have a conversation with your spouse and also tell me if you move to that point where you're ready to do it because that day that you take it you will receive phone calls from me and the following week as I walk with you but God is gracious. So here's the practical instruction. And you will find it in your bulletin every week for friends and guests and for yourself as a, a reminder because we all have dementia, forgetfulness, short memories. The outside ring will always contain grape juice always contain grape juice. The inside remainder, and it's about equal, 50-50, will contain wine. The choice is totally up for you. God has a cure, my friends, though, for our spiritual dementia and our spiritual hunger. God in His kindness has given us this, this meal, this sacrament for our good, and I believe that He has specified do this in remembrance of me. And He has adopted it from all the way back in Exodus. A meal with specific elements. We, we can only understand and experience the Lord's Supper if we grasp its crucial importance in our life of faith. What you eat or drink at this meal, 
In reality, it is not going to change your standing before a holy God. Remember, though, this is a feast that offers us the whole Christ, His real presence through the bond of the Holy Spirit. But it also is a reminder of the real Christ, the whole Christ, who is in some way absent from us. Where we are longing for that one day where we will be at the wedding feast of the Lamb and joining in saying, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray.